would open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Uh, we've been in the book of Jonah for the last two weeks, and we're going to continue in the book of Jonah. We're going to get, we're going to cover Jonah part three. And my big thumbs again. There we go. All right. Yeah. So Jonah part three is where we're going to be today. So we're starting Jonah chapter. Jonah chapter three is where we will be. And what we did is last week, last Sunday, we have left Jonah after he had been spit up by the fish onto dry land for seven days. That's where we've left him. So we're going to pick up where we left off. But in case you've missed the last couple of weeks, I'm going to give a little bit of a recap to find where we are in the book of Jonah. First of all, Jonah, a prophet of God, he was a speaker of, he, was a, he was a speaker to the children of Israel. God would deliver a message to Jonah. Then Jonah would obey God, and he would preach that message to the children of Israel. As a prophet to the children of Israel, he was a successful prophet. He did not mind doing that. Actually, um, everything that he said came to be under the rule of uh, Jeroboam II, as we learn um, in uh, the book of Second Kings when we find Jonah for the first time. And uh, the things that happened during his rule actually came by the word of God through the prophet Jonah. Now, Jonah was someone who was very familiar with the voice of God. But however, when the voice of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1, he said, Arise and go to Nineveh and cry out against that great city, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, as a man of God and a preacher of righteousness, you would think that this would be something that he would be willing to do. As a matter of fact, he did not like Nineveh, the Ninevites. He did not like the country of Assyria because they were the enemies of his own people. Actually, years, years later, they would come to attack um, Israel. You know, years later, during, you know, after Jonah goes and he preaches to them. And actually, they're actually starting to, to pick a fight with them even during this time. So, so, he, so God has called him to go preach to his enemies. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't like that at all, so therefore he, he takes a hop, skip, and a jump down to Joppa, which is a port city, and he buys himself a ticket to get on a boat ride all the way to Tarshish, which is only 2,500 miles in the other direction. You know, he only has to travel about 500 miles to get to Nineveh, but however, in order, for, in order for him to do what he thinks he can accomplish, he hops on a boat to try to escape the presence of God by removing himself as far as he can geographically from the task that God has called him to do. Maybe he thinks that if he can get far enough removed from where God wants him to go, that God will just relent from asking him to do so and get someone else to do it. How many of you have ever thought that before? I don't want to do this. Can you get someone else to do this? So however, Jonah, Jonah is escaping. He is actually walking in rebellion at the very first step towards Joppa with the idea of running from the presence of God. He has been in rebellion and he is being disobedient to the very word of God that came to him that said, go to Nineveh. So once he gets, to, once he gets on the boat, bad things start to happen. Now, it wasn't just a regular storm. It wasn't just the average storm that happened, but God caused a storm, caused a wind to come over the sea and caused a tempestuous waves to beat against the boat to where it was actually coming apart. And the sailors were freaking out. They're like, what are we going to do? At this point, now they, have, they are sailors. They have been on the water during storms before, but this is a major storm. They are now, they're now doing everything they possibly can. They're praying to their pagan gods. They're actually throwing the cargo off of the boat. 
This is where they're going to make their money. They're delivering cargo to Tarshish. That's how they're going to get paid. And now they are at a point where we can't do anything else except for lighten the load to maybe save the ship and our lives. So they're panicking and they're, in, they're, they're, being, they're frantic. So this is a big storm that God has sent on, this, um, on the sea because Jonah is on that boat. And he is trying to escape the presence of God. And God is saying, nah, Jonah, I'm still here. This is my storm, and I am still here. But we find Jonah asleep in the bottom of the ship. The captain comes to find him. He says, could you please arise and call on your God? We've been praying to our gods, and apparently our gods aren't the ones that are they're offended. Could you please pray to yours? And no, though, Jonah does not do that. So they continue doing whatever they possibly can to save the ship. And they gather together. They cast lots, and accurately, they fall on Jonah and, then, and they, they point to Jonah and say, Jonah, who are you? What are you doing? What's your job? Where are you from? And of what people are you? What's your deal, man? And he says this, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the God of Israel, the creator of the sea and the land. And immediately they were afraid. And they asked him the question, why have you done that? Because before, Jonah had told him that he was trying to escape the presence of God. So apparently they have understood, they had an understanding of who this God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of Israel, the one who set them free from captivity of Egypt and let them cross over the Dead Sea. This is a major God that is offended, and that dude brought that mess on our boat. What have you done to us, they ask. Then they, then they form the question, what can we do to you in order that the sea will become calm for us? And Jonah understood and knew if he was to just repent and say, look, I will pay that I have vowed as he did in, in chapter 2, that this would all smooth over for them. But he said, no, just go ahead and throw me overboard and the sea will become calm for you. And as, as we kind of looked at this, you know, uh, wait, two weeks ago, that Jonah was actually willing to die rather than repent and then go to Nineveh. He said, like, just throw me overboard. And last week I said, well, why didn't Jonah just jump on his own, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you know what you're doing here. Just jump on your own. But however, he said, throw me overboard. They didn't like the idea, so they tried their best to actually row back to land safely. But the more they rowed, the, f the further they got out because the, the storm continued to grow stronger and stronger. And finally, they were at the point where they were desperate, and they prayed to the one true God. They're not praying to their pagan gods, but they're praying to the God of Jonah, and they said, say, God, please don't hold us accountable for what we're about to do. We're about to throw this man overboard because we're about to die. So they threw him over, and immediately the storm ceased. And then, we don't hear anything about Jonah at this point, but whenever that happened, the, the storm didn't convince Jonah. Being thrown overboard didn't convince Jonah. But what did happen is that these men on this boat saw the mighty working of the all-powerful God in bringing the storm and ceasing it at that moment. And they recognized who God was, and they feared the Lord, and they offered sacrifices, and they took vows. We see a ship of men who were saved by adopting God as their Lord. And then... <clears throat> then what we find in verse 17, this is where the pop, most popular verse about Jonah is, is, that he was swallowed up by a fish. That God had prepared a fish for him to be swallowed up, and he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and then he prayed. Three days and three nights. Jonah's a pretty resilient guy. 
I mean, think about the conditions in which he was. I don't care if it was a big fish. I don't care if it was a blue whale, if he had room to swallow around. Look, it's dark. It's slimy. It's sloshing around with who knows what you're dealing with. I mean, the smell is horrible. He hung out in that mess for three days before he was willing to give in. Give me about 15 seconds. If I know I'm underwater in a fish, I'm going to be crying out to God, get me out of here. Okay, I'm sorry. But three days and three nights is what it took for God to finally convince Jonah that he needed to repent. Maybe Jonah thought that he would die in there and he wouldn't have to go to Nineveh, but God, had, God was gracious enough to, to, um, to keep him alive within the fish to the point where he came to his senses and he finally repented and he said, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And I love the wisdom that he speaks in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. He understood the longer that he held on to, um, to the, his disobedience and the fact of not wanting to go to Nineveh, the, the longer that he would forsake God's mercy that he was willing to give him if he would simply repent and pay what he had vowed, salvation is of the Lord. And then, so once he did that, once he, once he had prayed to God in the fish, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. All right, so Jonah is out of the fish, and he's on dry land now. Now, what we're going to find out, starting in verse 3, now you're, you're all called up, and if you want all the details to those messages, you can find them on our Internet on the website as well as our Facebook page, the, the links to those sermons if you want to get caught up. Now, on, um, in, in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, now what do we see here? As soon as he's vomited out on the dry land by the great fish that he's spent the night in and camped in for three days and three nights, in verse 1 it says, Now the, so now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, let me get you all caught up here. Jonah 2, Jonah 3. There we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, as, as we've been going through the book of Jonah, we, what we've found and what we've seen is just grace upon grace upon grace and mercy that God has been extending to his prophet Jonah. Even in his disobedience, God is withholding his judgment on him. He's being merciful. He, he, is, he is obviously disciplining Jonah to direct him back onto the right path that he wants to go to him. But now we see that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. After Jonah repented, God says, all right, I'm going to give you another chance to be obedient. I'm going to give you another chance. God is gracious, he's forgiving, and he's willing to give you another chance if you are willing to repent and to pay what you had vowed to him. Salvation is of the Lord. But I also want you to understand another thing. God relents of the affliction that he has put on Jonah. Now, remember in, in, uh, in chapter 2, in, in verse 2, he says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Now, what God has done by, by speaking to the fish and having him vomit Jonah onto the dry land is God has relented of the affliction that he's put on Jonah because of his disobedience. But I want you to see in verses 1 and 2, God does not relent of his call. He rebelled against God. God spoke to him. At first in chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah rebelled. Then God disciplined or chastised Jonah in order to get him to repent. Jonah repented. 
And now God is reminding him the thing to which he has been called. Go to Nineveh and preach to that city the message that I am going to tell you to preach. So just because we repent does not mean that God, does not mean that we do not have to be obedient. We must be obedient. And does, and does Jonah do that? Well, looking at verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. <clears throat> now, Jonah is now where? On his way to Nineveh, right? He's now being obedient to the Lord. Now, whenever it comes to repentance, Jonah not only repented, but he also walked in obedience. At first, he was trying to go away, but now the second time that where the Lord comes to him, after the discipline and after he's learned from it, it can bring about righteousness and righteous decisions whenever we learn from the discipline of God, he now is directed and he is walking towards Nineveh at this point. Now, I want you to understand, when it comes to repentance, repentance requires a change in behavior. Does that make sense? Repentance requires a change in your behavior. You must go, you must go from the point of, re, like, and what, what happened is Jonah's, Jonah's being disobedient to God. If he says, God, I am sorry, forgive me, but yet whenever he got spit out onto the dry land, if he started going back towards Joppa again, his repentance is no good, is it? You must repent and show your first works. You must repent and change your behavior. Because, what, what, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure a lot of us have done this, but have you ever repented of something and asked God to forgive you for something knowing that you're going to turn around and do it again the very, very next day? Is that true repentance? Absolutely not. It's not true repentance. That's asking for forgiveness for what you're doing, and you're going to plan on doing it tomorrow, but, get, but you know what? Well, God's a forgiving God, so therefore I'll just, before I go to sleep at night, I'll just ask for his forgiveness again for the thing that I plan on doing tomorrow. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is a change in your behavior and obedience to God after that repentance. Now, I'm not saying that we don't mess up and we fall back and fall down again, but we don't, make, we don't, we don't, we don't repent with a plan on continuing in that sin. We repent with a plan on following God's direction. So, so yeah, so now we see that that's exactly what Jonah has done. He has repented. He has said, I will pay what I had vowed. I am a prophet of God. I am speaking the message of God to the people to whom God has directed me to. So now the word of God came to him a second time, go to Nineveh and preach. And now we find that he is on his way to Nineveh. He arose and he went to Nineveh. And in verse 4, it says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And then he cried out and said, Yet forty days... And Nineveh will be overthrown. Quite a short sermon there. Quite a short sermon. But Jonah completed the task. He did what God had called him to do. He went to Nineveh and he preached. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now what he didn't do, he didn't just go through the motions. He didn't get up. He didn't get up and then go into the city and just kind of walk around. He didn't just show up in the city and be where God told him to be. He didn't go to Nineveh and, and try to invite the Ninevites to come down to Israel to hang out with them and to, learn, and, and to learn their ways. No, he went in with a purpose that God had given him to preach to that city. He followed through with the obedience. Going to the city was only part of it. The second part was to preach the message that he had given him. God called him to preach the great city, and he did what he was called to do. 
Now, when it comes to us as believers in Jesus Christ and, and followers and followers of Jesus, as we call ourselves to be Christians, you know, God calls us to do so much more than just showing up to church and walking around and going to Sunday school and reading our Bible and praying. All of those things are great, and we should do all of those things. But there is so much more to the Christian way of life in addition to the corporate worship that we experience here when we gather. There's so much more than what we do whenever than, than what we do here. This is important. This is good. This is God glorifying. But if this is all that we do, we're just going through the motions. It should impact our lives in the, in the world around us. We, as the body of Christ, just we have a checklist of things to do, right? We've got the commands of God that are laid out for us in black and white, and we are to live them out. Not so we can check off the box of the list. But out of our love for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, for the love of the people of the world, we are obedient to the commands of God. And we seek to be obedient to him and not be rebellious as Jonah was in chapter 1. You know, showing up, showing up to church and worshiping and praying and reading our Bible and praying at home, if it doesn't impact you in a way and bring you to a place of obedience to God's word, it's no good. Think about that for a moment. If, you're, if the, your Bible study, your reading, your praying, your church attendance, your worship experiences, if they do not lead to obedience to what God tells you to, to do, it is absolutely no good. We, we, we call him our Lord with our lips, but our actions do not show it. Jesus even said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not obey? We must have an understanding that what we do, we must when we come to a place of repentance and turning to Christ, our lives must be, that, must be one of obedience to what God's word says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter 1. He rebelled. What we do is we see a flip here in chapter 3. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he stepped up, he went to Nineveh, and he preached the message that God told him to preach. He walked in obedience at this point. What are the results of such a sermon? How many of y'all would like me to preach a sermon that's this, that short? <laughs> you have 40 days and First Baptist will be overthrown, okay? But 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So what is the result of such a short sermon, which even seems to be not a whole lot of effort in preparation and, and preaching? But what we find in verse 5, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, if you look at that phrase there in that first, the first part of the verse, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed who? Jonah? No. They believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, yes, Jonah is the one that proclaimed the word, but it was not Jonah's word, was it? But this was the message that God told Jonah to preach. This was God's word that he delivered. This was, the, this was the message that God had sent him to Nineveh to preach. The people of Nineveh, they recognized that this was not a warning that came from Jonah. This was not a warning from the children of Israel. Israel was very weak at this point. They had no business picking a fight with anybody because their armies had been, been dwindled down to something so low. So they understood it wasn't, about a, it wasn't a threat from Jonah. It wasn't a threat from Israel, but this is the word from God. 
that in 40 days, if something doesn't happen, you will be overthrown. And the, the result is that they understood it was the word of God, they took it as it was the word of God, and they proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This was God's message. And something as we start to unfold what takes place in the city of Nineveh, as we go forward all the way through the end of chapter 3, I want you to understand there is not one single additional mention of the prophet Jonah. Nothing. Nothing at all. The only thing that we know that Jonah did is he walked into the city and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And Jonah's out of the picture. Now this kind of gives us an idea. Whenever it comes to us preaching the message that God gives us, and the reason why we don't hear anything about Jonah afterwards is because the gospel is what transforms the lives. It has nothing to do with the messenger. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me, but it has to do with the message that we present to the lost and dying world that Jesus Christ died and was buried and resurrected for the sins of the world. Repent and trust in Jesus. And even notice that Jonah, he didn't go through a great effort in preaching this. I, was, I would assume he did the bare minimum that God was requiring him to do. He went into the city, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There, I've done it. I've been obedient, and he walks out. I have done what I've been called to do, but yet the people believed God. And it wasn't, had nothing to do about Jonah. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing that we have a great God and creator who is willing to take our smallest effort, our smallest ability, and do great things with it. He can do some amazing things out of Jonah's straight obedience. He still didn't want to go preach to Nineveh, but out of obedience and the fear of the Lord, he did what God called him to do, and God took that effort, and he saved an entire city. He took his effort and did really big things, the very small things that he, that he was willing to do. God made an amazing um, transformation with, with Nineveh. You know, whenever it comes to preaching the gospel of, uh, of Jesus Christ in our world and who we are, it's very important that you try to remove yourself as, as, an, as the effective party. You know, we're there just to preach the message of Jesus Christ. That's it. You know, whenever it comes to you preaching, preaching the gospel, it's not about how confident you are in yourself. It's not about believing in yourself regardless of what the world will tell you today. It's not about being confident in who you are and what you can do and how good you can articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ and how well you can answer the skeptics. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe we should study hard and be very well prepared in, in, in preaching the gospel as well as answering the questions. But our, but our confidence does not need to lie in our abilities or in our efforts. Our confidence needs to lie in the very word of God that we preach to the world. That's where the power of God is going to be found. That's where we need to rely on the Holy Spirit and the truth of the word of God and preach it effectively. Because I want you to understand it makes no difference who preaches the message. Now, God could have used anybody. He could have used anybody he wanted to, but yet he chose to send Jonah. He wanted Jonah to go, and he corrected Jonah until he actually was straightened up and it was obedient and went to Nineveh. But it wasn't about Jonah. It was about the message that God wanted to deliver to the people of Nineveh in hopes that they might repent. So whenever it comes to confidence, it's not about who I am or what I can do or how well I can help God out. He doesn't need me for anything. 
It's about me being obedient to him and preaching the word of God and placing my confidence that God's going to do his part when I preach. He can do it. He can handle it. He can take, your, he can take the absolute worst presentation of the gospel that you've got and do some amazing things with it. It's not about you. It's not about me, but it's about the king that we worship, the king that we preach about. He is the one in whom all of our confidence needs to be seated. What we need to do as believers of Jesus Christ, I think that all of us need to have an understanding of who God is and who we are in his plan. I think we ought to humble ourselves before the foot of the cross and count it a great privilege. And count it a great privilege and an honor to be called to proclaim his message. Think about what he has given us in commissioning us to preach the message of Jesus Christ. That should be a humbling thing, a privileged honor for us to carry God's message, me, a nobody, to who God is, but yet he is asking me to take this message to this great city and speak out against it because the wickedness has come up before him. But as we see the, the unfolding of what happened after Jonah went in and preached, it says so the people of Nineveh, they believed God. And then verse 6, it says, Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. The word came to the king of Nineveh. Notice the people, nor Jonah, are the ones given credit here, but the word is what came to the king of Nineveh. It wasn't who was saying it, Right? Because if he put any, any strength or any, um, or any weight on who brought the king the message, I mean, you're going to the king of Nineveh with a message. It wasn't about the person bringing it to them, but it was about what was being said. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. When the word of God came to the king and he recognized it as it was God speaking himself, he understood that something was going to have to be different. But it was the word that came to the king as well. And he arose and he arose from his throne and he laid down his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. Looking at the king's actions, we have a very powerful man, probably the most powerful man in his day in that area. Very powerful army during that time. He could take he could he could take over you know countries that he at will that he wanted to. But what we find is when the word of God came to him, yet in forty days Nineveh shall be overthrown. Understanding and recognizing that was God speaking to him, he got off of his throne, laid aside his robe, and pretty much resigned as king and said, "I am no longer king," and he submitted himself to the King of Kings. He took his robe off and replaced it with burlap. He traded in his throne. He sat in ashes. And he put himself on the same playing field as everyone else in the city of Nineveh. And in verse 7, what we find here is, is the urgency that, that, um, that flowed from his throne, from what he was uh, commanded to say and to, and to do, the ability that he had to proclaim a decree. And he said, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. 
even as a new convert, the king of Nineveh realized the urgency for repentance for the people of Nineveh. Why was it something that was so urgent? Because the judgment of God was coming, was it not? Forty days and you will be overthrown. The judgment of God was upon them. We are told that as, that, as, um, that as people who have not trusted in Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, that the wrath of God abides upon us. The wrath of God was upon the, the, uh, the city of Nineveh, and the king understood that. It's like if we are not, don't get right with God, we don't stand a chance. He saw the urgency. And we too, as believers of Jesus Christ, if we have an understanding that the world will die and spend an eternity in hell unless they trust in Jesus Christ, we should understand that there is an urgency because the judgment of God is coming. It will be here. It's going to happen. And, and whenever Jesus comes back, he will judge this world in righteousness. According to the very word of God, he will judge all of mankind. And those who will stand before him without being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will face him on that day. They will be judged righteously and sentenced to an eternity separated from God in hell forever. We have an urgency with this message. We have a strong urgency with this message. As, as, Joan, as, the, as the king had an understanding, the judgment of God is upon us. We don't, don't let anybody do anything but repent cry mightily to God and relent from your evil. Do not do the violence that is in your hands. Stop what you're doing. Turn and face God. Cry mightily to God and turn from your evil and the violence that is in your hand. But something else I want you to understand here. The king of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh, whenever he preached this message, he said, um, he preached the message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I want you to also understand none of them in the people of Nineveh or the king himself is asking the question, why? Why is that judgment going to come upon me? Why are we going to be overthrown? They're not asking for details, are they? No, they know why. Because they are sinful people, they're going to have to face God and God's judgment is coming up on them, and they know that what they are doing is wrong and sinful. Because the king puts out a decree, and he says, Look, cry mightily to God, and let everyone turn from your evil way and from the violence that is in your hands. None of us have any excuse when it comes to us being repentant towards God. Nobody has a way out. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We have all transgressed against the law of God, and we all know it. There's not a person upon this earth that does not know what sin is because the, the, the moral law of God has been written on the hearts of all mankind and God speaks. We don't need the Bible to tell us what's right and from wrong, do we? If that be the case, then he owes the entire generation of Noah an apology because there was no Bible. When we sin, when we go against God, we do it willingly and knowingly. The king of Nineveh understood the city that he was over and the country that he was serving in was a sinful people. And whenever he heard the word of God that judgment was coming, he cried out and, and told them and put the message out that would be published to mightily cry to God and stop doing evil. Repent and turn to God before it's too late. You know, some people, they change when they see the light, others when they feel the heat. Obviously, he was feeling some heat. But however, I just pray that you turn. That you turn. 
The last thing that we see here, you know, concerning the decree from the king in verse 9, it says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Who can tell that God, if God will do this? Now, what, what is being said in this, decree, in this decree from the king is that there is no guarantee that we will not be destroyed in 40 days. There is no guarantee that that will not happen. But however, you are to put, put on sackcloth, sit in, ashes, uh, sit in ashes, and pray mightily to God and stop your sin. And who knows if God will relent? Who knows if God's hand of judgment will not come upon us? We, we, don't, we don't know. It's just going to happen. But however, they still repented. They still repented before the almighty, powerful God when the word of the Lord was delivered to them, regardless of what might happen in the future. Now, you might ask yourself this question, why in the world would you want to do that? You know, what, what, what kind of goes through the thought process of someone who's going to repent and not get anything in return, Right? Well, the reason why he was doing this is, the only reason that I can understand is in, in doing this is because, one, he knew that he was guilty. He knew that he was guilty. He called, that their, he called their ways evil, and he called their ways violent. He knew that they were guilty before an almighty, powerful God, and they stood before him guilty. That's one. He knew he was guilty. Secondly, he did not deserve mercy. Even if they did repent and turn from their wicked ways, he still did not deserve mercy. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ, because we have, we have, we have trusted Christ as our personal Savior and we have been given the grace of God and our sins have been forgiven and we have been given an eternal home in heaven, you don't deserve that. You and I, we don't deserve that. But that is a gift that has been given by our Heavenly Father as he has reconciled us to him. This king understood and knew that God did not owe him anything. He knew that, but he did know that his only hope was to repent and cry out mightily to God and to cease from doing the evil and to cease from doing the violence that was in their hands. That was their only hope. So why would you repent and without a guarantee? One, because you know you're guilty. Two, because you know you don't deserve mercy. And three, God doesn't owe you anything. And if he's, if he's gracious enough to relent from this destruction, it is your only hope anyway. So he had no guarantee. But however, in verse 10, it says, Then God saw their works. And they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said. He would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You know, we do serve in gracious, forgiving God. In verse 10, what we see is that even though the people of Nineveh may not have known that God would have relented from their destruction... What we do see is that we have a God, as described by Jonah in chapter 4, verse 2, that we have a God who is gracious, who's merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm when his people will repent of their sins. Wow, what an amazing God that we serve. One who will relent from the destruction upon the repentance of his people. 
you know, those of us who have tasted the, the grace of God through our salvation, uh, we, just, we should just be calling it a privilege to do anything that he asks us, ask of us. It's a privilege that he has given us so much. Even though in this world we may not think that we have a lot, we may not have as much as the next person, but whenever it really comes down to it, whenever the blood of Jesus Christ has covered your sin and washed you clean, how much do you really have? I mean, in all honesty, I mean, that's the greatest thing that you could possibly have. Anything else is just kind of extra bells and whistles that we get blessed with in this world. In all honesty, you really, really can't add to what God has already given you. Right? If you have a billionaire, what's $2? It's not much, is it? No, not at all. But if only if all you got is $2 and somebody throws you a billion, that, that makes a difference. Right? That can level the playing field. God has blessed us in such great ways that we need to make sure that whenever God calls us to do what he has called us to do, that we walk in obedience and we cease to rebel what he has done, cease to rebel um, his commandments. So this morning, as we prepare for a time of invitation, as, as our musician comes forward and, and the music begins to play this morning, let's, let's just take a look at what you know, God has done here, not only through the life of Jonah, but the city of Nineveh. The first thing that we see is that if you're here and you can identify with Jonah, you're in a position where, where you've been rebellious against God and that, that you need to repent. You know, I pray that, that you would just bow before God today, right now, and repent and say, God, forgive me. I will pay that which I have vowed to you. And get back up, dust yourself off, get back in the fight and do what God has called you to do. Because I promise you, God has not relented of the call on your life. But however, in your repentance, he can relent of the affliction that may be upon you. And secondly, we see God's compassion, not only for the people who claim to be his people, but he has a compassion even for the lost and dying world, our enemies. He has a compassion towards our enemies. He sent Jonah to the enemy nation of Assyria to preach to them, to preach to that generation, even though the further generations would eventually come and attack Israel. He had a plan for that generation. He had a compassion upon them, and he wanted to see that great city saved. You know, it's an amazing thing that, we, that what we can see in, in this, in the story of Jonah is that Jonah did spend three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And what this does is anticipates the three days and three nights that Jesus spent in the belly of the earth. When he died on the cross for the sin of mankind, he was buried and he was there for three days and he was resurrected for our benefit, for our salvation. He, he did that. You know, Christ's death and burial and resurrection is represented in here, but also we see that Nineveh's salvation represents a salvation that is available to all people. There's no one who's outside of the extension of the arm of God when he offers grace. So my prayer here to you this, this morning is if, if you identify with Jonah or if you identify with the Ninevites, if you identify with Jonah and you need to repent and get back on the horse and follow Jesus and pick up the message that he has given you and to carry it out into the world, I pray that you will repent and do that. If you find yourself identifying as, with, as one of the Ninevites, needing to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, today is the day to make that happen. Don't put it off any further because what, what, what Jonah spoke very, very plainly, those who re regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. 
God is offering his mercy and his grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are his children and for those of us who are not yet his children, God's grace is being offered to you this morning. So let's stand, let's have a quick word of prayer and a time of reflection. If the Lord has spoken to your heart this morning, I pray that you will do business with him today.